0: Bibles with me to John. We're going to be reading from chapters 2 and 20. So, beginning in chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the brine groom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then they pour, will pour the bad wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Hey,
1: welcome to, uh, welcome to RUF, especially if this is your uh, first or second time. Thank you for coming back after last week was so crowded and hot and overwhelming. Um, I do want to say something. I, look, we recognize the songs that we sing to a lot of you probably are very foreign and maybe even weird. Um, and we know that. Uh, and uh, that's okay. A lot of, a lot of people, um, when they come to RUF, the songs are very strange. But when they leave RUF, it's one of their favorite things. And the reason that we sing what we do... It's because Jesus tells us to worship in spirit and truth, so we want to sing songs that we think reflect the truth of, of who God is, what we're like, and what it's like to walk with Him. And so, like we just sang about how um, burdens now, now may crush me down, and disappointments all around, trouble speak and mournful sigh, sorrow through a tear-stained eye. Because sometimes the Christian life really feels like that. Uh, and so we want what we sing to inform how Christianity is supposed to look and feel. So... Alright, what we're doing uh, this whole semester is we're walking through the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. And every week we're examining what John claims that he recorded these specific things in his book. So that by seeing who Jesus is and believing on him, you may discover what real life is. And so here's, kinda, here's what I'm going to propose to you to think about. I think when we think the word life, we think it, to some extent of happiness and joy. What if I told you that Jesus, his chief aim for your life, what he's up to in, in, in your life and in this world is to bring you joy, to bring you a real enjoyment? How does that hit you? I, I think maybe it sounds cheesy sometimes, like real Christian-y. Maybe even it sounds unrealistic and naive. Uh, and I... I think that's surprising to most of us. I, I heard about a, pa, uh, a conversation that a pastor had with, I think she was a junior in high school. She'd been really involved with the youth group, um, worked hard at school. And for the second time, she was broken up with by a guy that she really liked. And so she finally went to the pastor's office. I, lo- I loved how honest she was. And she looked at the pastor and she said, look, I hear you talk about Jesus. I believe in him. But what good is Jesus if I don't have a boyfriend?" And like, maybe we laugh at that, but I actually think that's a beautiful moment of honesty. Because whether you're examining Christianity tonight, whether you're trying to figure it out, whether you've grown up in the church, definitely, definitely if you're burned out tonight, sometimes you just think, okay, but what good is Jesus if I'm, if I'm sad? What good is, is Jesus if I'm still lonely? And what we think is that we really don't think Jesus wants to bring me joy. And the passage that Molly read for us that we're about to look at suggests that Jesus really does bring real life by bringing real lasting joy. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, revealing yourself to us. Uh, one of the ways that we know you, you love us is you've given us your word. But the way, ultimately, we know that you love us is that you gave us your life and death. And so I pray that we would see that and we would taste and see that the Lord is good tonight. Whether we are sad tonight, whether we're scared, or whether we are full of joy, uh, may we see Jesus in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, three things we're going to look at. Basically, the problem of the party, the solution to the party, and the cost of the party. Uh, last semester, I showed up and we did, we did this together, so you're going to have to listen to it again. Um, All right, what is is the big problem that Jesus encounters? This is his first miracle, right? That's what you're told. And so it's really interesting because Jesus, if you go back to chapter 1, has just called his disciples to him. And the first thing that he does is he takes them to a wedding, which is kind of odd, maybe. And the weddings in Jewish culture in those days, I mean, weddings are a big deal today. They were huge back then. They would last upwards of, of a week. Uh... They they were such a big deal uh, that if what happened here, like the wine ran out, you could actually be sued. That's how big of a deal it was. And so this problem that comes to Jesus' attention, right, is verse 3, where Mary says the party is out of wine. And so look, on one level, yeah, the, the problem is kind of simple and ordinary. That the wine runs out. And we know this is true, right? Like, when a bar closes or when they quit serving alcohol, what happens? People go home. And that's what happened here. When the wine ran out of the wedding, if it was supposed to last for seven days, if it went ran out on day four, people were going home. It was going to end early. And basically what would happen is the groom, both the couple, the bride and the groom, but namely back in those days, the groom paid for everything, which I wish, with two daughters. Not not true anymore. But mainly, the groom himself would undergo public shame and embarrassment because he didn't have enough money. And everybody went home. And so think about that. Jesus' first miracle, His big announcement to the world, right, we saw last week, this is God become flesh, as crazy as that might sound to you. The way that He reveals who He is, you ready? He encounters a party that is dying from this unnamed couple and they're about to endure some shame because the fuel of celebration the joy, the wine is about to run out and what he does is he turns water into wine and he revs back up the celebration now that's cool I admit that but really that's your first miracle Jesus? like that's how you come charging into the world saying here's who I am here's what I'm about Why not raise the dead? You know? Why not like have angels show up and and like carry you up into the to the you know to the sky and glow and say, see, I'm the Son of God? Well, here's my question. Could not the way this miracle goes to hell be one of the very things that actually displays that Scripture is true? You know what I mean? Like if you're tonight, if you're here tonight and you're skeptical of Christianity trying to figure it out, trying to consider its truthfulness, just consider this. If you wanted to make up stories about Jesus, so to make people to believe, would you really begin with this? Like he just kind of stands off in the corner and changes water into wine? I doubt it. Like, who would come up with that? The most logical explanation is it actually happened. Right? It's worth considering. But, second of all, and this is key for understanding, I think, what, what the big picture of this miracle actually means the Bible, if you read Old Testament and New Testament, it associates wine and alcohol with blessing and joy. Okay? You can see Psalm 104, 15, Proverbs 3, we, we could actually go on and on. And it is, the Bible associates lack of wine with sorrow and darkness. For instance Isaiah 24, there's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. And so when you start looking at how scripture uses wine as a symbol here's what you realize. When the party is running out of wine, it actually is a parable. It's a picture of what the Bible teaches about all humanity. That humanity, apart from Jesus, who is life and joy, that's going to be his claim, is always characterized by joy running out, by the wine running out. See, according to the Bible, our problem ever since sin entered the world is separation from God, from Jesus, who is life itself. And so our sin... Means this, we look for satisfaction and joy in everything besides Jesus. We look for it in all the wrong places. And therefore, our lives is characterized by this the joy joy always runs out, the wine runs out. So, uh, there's an article that came out years and years ago from a New York newspaper, um, and it was this uh, the author's name was Cynthia Hamill and she wrote an article about the celebrities that she got to know before they really made it big she said she'd go eat at these restaurants and there were you know tr- there there they were bussing tables hoping for their for their big break and here's what she said i pity celebrities no i really do celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings but now their wrath is awful You see, they wanted fame. They worked and they pushed. And the morning after each finally made it famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay and provide them with personal fulfillment, it happened and nothing changed. They were still themselves. See, the celebrities thought real joy would be found, lasting joy, if I finally made it. And at the end of the day... They were still themselves, and the joy ran out, and it was un- insufferable. And see, this is where I think, this is where I think, if you'll consider, the problem at the wedding, it's my problem, and it's humanity's problem. Because our life is characterized by trying to find satisfaction and joy in anything and everything, and the, and the joy always runs out. So yes, on the one hand, this speaks loudly to what is the party culture of all myths. Okay, I graduated here in 2003. There's no exchange that much, okay? Parties are great. I love parties. Jesus shows up at parties all the time in the Bible, okay? Realize that. But here's what I want to ask you, is why? Why are you doing what you're doing at parties? Because I think if you're honest, a lot of you would admit this, and I say this gently. It's because you lack so much joy. It's because you lack so much security. Not because you're full of joy. right? The party is a place to hide. It's a place to hide from the sorrows of your life. It's a place to numb the, the, the pain of feeling like nobody notices you. That's what's going on. It's the place where you hope that the look from the guy or the whatever sexual intimacy that you feel that night will finally inject a joy that will last and will never run out. And what you begin to realize is that alcohol, okay, it's a good thing, Jesus made it, but that alcohol, for many of you, it is not functioning as an expression of joy. It's liquid courage. That's what we used to call it back in my day. Because it is... It is hiding something. It is hiding your fears. And the pot is not because you're carefree and full of life. It's the only way you figured out how to cover your insecurity and your lack of joy. How do I know? Because Monday morning comes. And the joy has run out. And the problem of humanity is the next weekend. The next weekend will fix it. Maybe it won't run out. I love all this. And I'm telling you the culture of all this, it's not one of fullness of joy, it's a lack of joy. Have you considered that? It is why some of you that you click on picture after picture after picture because that illicit picture, it brings a sense of excitement. It does. It brings a sense of joy. But it always runs out, doesn't it? It's why you click on the next picture. It's why some of you are so driven. Because you figured it out. Like you laugh at the stereotype on this culture. Because you're convinced, of course the joy is going to run out there. But you think, if I'm well liked, and I'm well respected, and I do well in school, and I'm involved in the right things, and I'm involved in the campus ministry, and going mission trips, if I can be that person, the joy will never run out. And here's what, here's what I bet. You're tired. When you have room to breathe for a second, you realize, next week's coming. And I've got to keep up the image again. Or the joy's going to run out. We could go on and on. It's, it is why some of you, and I say this tenderly, you are in a bad relationship with the opposite sex and you know it. But you won't let it go. Because you think, what if this is the best I can do? And if I end this, then the joy really will run out. And so the problem at the wedding, on the one hand, yes, it it is an unnamed couple about to undergo some shame. But, on the other hand, it's this grand picture of all of our problems, of humanity. That because of separation from God, and even as a Christian, because of sin within me. Trying to live without Jesus means I try to find satisfaction and joy apart from Jesus, and it always runs out. So, what's the solution then? The solution is verse 6 through 10. Jesus tells the servants, Fill six stone water jars that hold between 20 and 30 gallons. And the servants do that. And Jesus says, Now take some and give it to the master of the feast. Think like a, a wedding coordinator or something like that. And he tastes it. And here's what he discovers this is amazing wine. He says, like, this is better than the wine we had earlier in the week. And most people save the bad wine for, for the end because people are inebriated by them. But you've given us the best wine now. And so the solution, realize this, on the one hand, Jesus changes miraculously water into wine and he revs back up the party. Why? So that the bride and groom never undergo embarrassment and shame. That's kind of amazing. Think about that. In the grand scheme of the world is the fact that this couple's wedding celebration is about to end early. Is that a big problem? I mean, who cares about that? Jesus does. This is the kind of God that Jesus is. He's that kind. He's that compassionate. He's that humble. He, he does this miracle in such a way that the spotlight never comes off the groom and bride. They just kind of keep clicking along. It's awesome. That's the kind of God that Jesus is. Do you believe that? Like, do you think that your struggles, your problems, do you think they bring compassion out of Jesus? Or do you think they bring irritation out of Jesus? Because this is who He is. He even notices... This: do you think Jesus cares about the fact that you're still so, uh, lonely in a sophomore in college? Do you think Jesus cares about the fact that you have dyslexia and there's things about your mental state that make it hard in school? Do you think Jesus cares about your chronic pain? The answer to that is if you actually go to him with those things, if you actually cry out to him with those things and believe that he cares. But also, look. He doesn't just turn water into wine. The other thing that he does, he makes a hundred and twenty gallons of it, of incredible tasting wine. I think this is what I read. That would be around seven hundred bottles of wine. Okay, you, it's supposed to make you ask why, why that much, like why the abundance. Why is it this great, rich wine and not natty light, you know? I mean, like, this is what he does. And here's, here's the analogy I want you to think about. I stole this from Ricky Jones, all right? Imagine this scenario. Friday night, you're in the Walmart parking lot, okay? And here's what you observe. You observe, you observe a middle-aged man walk out of Walmart, and he's got a bottle of wine, and he gets in this car. What are you going to think? That guy is probably going home to be with his wife and they're going to have a nice, nice night out of right? What if you see that same guy walking out of Walmart and he's got three cases of fat tire? You're going to think, that guy's going to a party. It's probably going to be fine. Well, what would you think if he backed his pickup truck up to Walmart and they loaded down his truck with 700 bottles of the most expensive, best-tasting wine you could ever have. You would think this. That guy is the party. (laughs) Like, wherever he's going, that's where the fun's going to be. It doesn't matter where he shows up. He's the life. Look, I, I am not trying to be irreverent. I'm not. I'm trying to get across the fact that this is what Jesus is saying. When he makes that much wine, he is proclaiming something about himself that you're supposed to get. He is saying this. I am the joy. I am the life. I'm the one that you're looking for behind everything else that you keep searching for. I am fullness of life and joy. I'm the only place that it will never, ever run out. That's what he's saying. And we say, how can that be? It's when we begin to realize that all my pursuits of joy, all these places where the wine keeps running out, do you know what you and I are really longing for? Here's what you're looking for. You want to find somewhere or some place where you can be fully known and deeply loved. That's what you're looking for. It's actually what you were made for. It's what you're yearning for in sex. It's what you're yearning for in all your achievements. It's why some of you, you realize... I was awesome at high school sports and now nobody cares. I don't know what to do with myself because I had this place where I was known and loved and now I don't feel like I have it. It's why rush is terrifying to some of you because some of that is about to be put on trial. Will you know me and will you love me? Will you accept me? But here's what Jesus is saying. I'm the only one who knows you deeply and actually know you better than yourself and will love you fully. He's the Lord of the universe who made you. And he's saying, I will love you with a never stopping, never giving up, always forever love. That's who he is. The question is, do you believe that? Do I believe that? Because I think most of us think Jesus is a withholding God. We think he's stingy. We think he's stingy with grace. We think he's stingy with joy. Honestly, how many of you think I think this way sometimes, but that if I think about what real life and joy is, Jesus gets in the way of it. Like if I imagine what real life in college is going to look like, Jesus gets in the way. What we think is Jesus turns wine into water. That's what we think. But he turns water into wine because he's fullness of joy. There's no lasting joy apart from him. And I think it will actually be Refreshing. For some of you to finally admit this you just don't really think Jesus has joy it's why some of you are subtly angry because you've tried to do the right thing in college you've worked hard at being moral, you've worked hard at being religious and following God and you're mad because you look at so many other people that could not care less and they're more popular than you Their future's working out. They seem to be happier than you. And you're mad because you're convinced Jesus is stingy. He hasn't given you what you deserve. And Jesus is saying, I am a God who wants to ravish you with joy. Jesus is more pro-joy, pro-life than you are. He's joy itself. And I realize like there's sorrow in this room and there's hurt in this room and there's abuse in this room, and I'm not glazing over that. That'll be covered plenty in the rest of John. I'm just saying this is who Jesus is, and this is what he wants to bring to you. Okay. Maybe that sounds nice. How can this is, what, this is the cost, verse three and four. The dialogue between Jesus and his mother, it's strange. Right, Mary says, Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus' response is cryptic. It's it's strange. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. When Jesus says, my hour, here's what he's talking about. My coming death, crucifixion, and resurrection. Over and over again, John's going to keep talking about my hour, his hour, his hour. So when Mary says, Jesus, they have no wine, what Jesus says is, it's not time for me to die yet. Now, that's strange. It's almost like Jesus is thinking about his death while he's watching a wedding. Is that actually strange? Because what do so many of you do at weddings if you've been to a wedding? Many of you, what you do is you start thinking about your own. Imagining what your bridesmaid's dresses will look like. Imagining what your Mr. Right will look like. Well, Jesus, think about this, is God himself. He created marriage. And do you know what Ephesians 5 tells us is the purpose of marriage? It says this. That a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this is a great mystery. And I'm telling you, it refers to Christ and the church. That Jesus created marriage to be a picture, a living picture of how Jesus loves his people, the church. So what is Jesus doing? He's thinking about his own wedding. But his wedding is going to be the one to his church, his people. But he thinks about dying. Why? Because what it's going to cost Jesus to be with his church forever, to win them forever, it's his hour. His crucifixion. His death. This is how you can trust Jesus with your joy. Meditate and think on what it cost Jesus to save you, to marry you. You see, what we deserve for looking for life and joy in all the wrong places, it's death. It's eternal sorrow. It's separation from God because we're looking away from life and joy itself. But Jesus goes to the cross to take what we deserve. Jesus, the night before he's going to die, he sweats drops of blood. So terrified and sorrowful is he? He drinks the cup of God's wrath. Separation from God. The cup of God's sorrow. Why? Because what you and I deserve. Why? Because he loves you that much. Why? So that he can bring you to a place that the Bible calls the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's where this world is headed. It's where world history will end. That when Jesus comes back, he will bring forth the wedding of all weddings. Where there will finally be no more sorrow. And no more sin. And no more abuse. And no more tears. And no more pain. Where the wine always flows and the joy never runs out. A guy named Tim Keller actually points this out. This is actually hilarious to think about. Think about the groom in this wedding, this actually nameless groom. Here he is, the wine has run out, which means he's about to undergo an embarrassment, shame, kind of be a laughing stock. And what happens? Because of Jesus, his shame never comes to the forefront. This is what's awesome. The wedding coordinator has no idea what happens and looks at the groom and says, Hey, most people like, save the bad stuff for the last. You save the best stuff uh, for the end. And, like, this is the best party ever. And you get the impression that the groom's like, yeah, yeah, that's just the kind of guy I am. (laughs) I mean, like, and you realize, like, by the end of that wedding week, like, people had been giving him high fives and saying, that was the greatest party ever. It's like, I know, I know, awesome. And there's Jesus watching the groom get the credit for what he did. And he loves it. This is what salvation actually looks like. Jesus takes what we deserve. He takes my shame. He takes my sin. He takes my embarrassment. And guess what? He gives me the credit for everything that he's earned. He gives me his beauty, his righteousness, his perfection. He says, Here, you can have it. Bask in it. Look, Jesus does not want to be your belief. He doesn't want to be your tradition. He doesn't want to be some pill that you swallow just to make your life better. He wants to be your husband. That's why he came. He wants to be with you. And he says, you can trust me. You can trust me with your joy. Because look at the extent I went to get you. Don't you at least wish that was true? It is. It's infinite joy offered to you tonight in Jesus. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, giving us your word. I I don't know where everybody is tonight, but to some extent, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that we are are the weather. We just look for joy and satisfaction in so many things besides you. And the joy keeps running out. And it feels like we're taking crazy pills because we keep going back to the same thing. Would you, be ber- would you be merciful tonight? And would you enable us to see that you are real joy? Because you know us better than, than we know ourselves and you deeply love us. Would you help us to see and sit in the posture of humility and receive that? In your son's name I pray.
0: Amen.